I'm Marcus Smith, and this is Constant Wonder. Join me on a quest to find awe and wonder in all nature, human or wild, vast or small. A search for all that moves us beyond words. Death is near, but so are loved ones. In the short weeks or days remaining for you, you have dreams, unlike any you may have had before. And in these dreams that come to you are people who have preceded you in death. They were close, significant people, maybe a friend or parent or sibling. It could be a child. These visions keep coming, and you share them openly with the people around your bedside. Now, even if you're not actually terminally ill, one day you could be, and you wouldn't be the only person to experience such dreams and describe them to others before closing your eyes for the last time. I'm talking about a phenomenon that is surprisingly common and in recent years has been well documented. These dreams are so vivid, so completely real to the person having them, it doesn't even matter if they're asleep or awake while having them. She started seeing him in the living room. So she'd say, oh, your dad's here. She'd get a big smile on her face, and she'd say, your dad's here. I'm like, really? Where is he? Sitting right there next to the one day he was sitting next to my father-in-law. And it all kind of made us at peace because we knew dad was there. That's the voice of a firsthand observer, Lisa, describing one of her mother's waking dreams in her final days before passing. No one else could see Lisa's dad, just her mother, who spoke of him as if he were right there, as real as anyone else in the room. Christopher Kerr has conducted riveting research about all of this. We're going to get to know his story, too. Kerr is a medical doctor and CEO and chief medical officer at Hospice and Palliative Care, Buffalo, New York. Terminally ill patients frequently have what Kerr calls end-of-life experiences. These experiences seem to provide comfort to the dying and their families alike, often giving rise to profound emotional or spiritual growth in the patient. And here's the part about dreams. These end-of-life experiences often include seeing or talking to or interacting with a loved one who has already died. Dr. Kerr says that experiences like Lisa's and her family's can profoundly diminish our fears about death and dying. These patients will often experience a transformation of perspective and perception, he says. Their loved ones and doctors, close as these people are to the patient's transformation, well, they often become observers of what Kerr has called an unlocked soul. His research is featured in his book, Death is But a Dream, Finding Hope and Meaning at Life's End. There's actually a lot that doctors can do and should do to be part of these transformative experiences. And Christopher Kerr has lent an able hand in the ongoing effort to fundamentally rewrite the role of medical doctors who are present at life's closing scenes. How did Christopher Kerr come to know or care about any of this? What's his backstory? Well, throughout all his medical training, he never set his sights on hospice work or palliative care, not at all. In fact, his residency and a subsequent fellowship, these were calculated to launch him into cardiology. But during that fellowship, things took an abrupt turn. You know, the old Robert Frost thing that two roads diverged in the woods. Help me if I'm oversimplifying this. It comes down to you sitting down and reading the newspaper and seeing a help wanted ad. <laughs> yeah, that's it. I actually, I didn't sit down. I was restless. I couldn't sleep. And I read every inch of the paper and never in my life I looked for a job. Most of my life I didn't want when I was in school. And yeah. The thing that's weird about this, improbable, I don't know how, it, how well it speaks for you, but you were trained to be a cardiologist at that point already. Yes. Where were you in your career? And, you, and then you're looking at the help wanted ads. Yeah, I, I, I had done an MD, a PhD, I had done my residency in internal medicine, so I was in my cardiology fellowship. And you know, I have some daughter with some challenges, so my wife was unable to work, so I was always looking to moonlight. And it was scarce. 
And I, I know I just had read everything in the paper and there was an ad for a doctor. And I thought, well, that's weird. Yeah, I would say so. This this yeah. is not the orthodox way of a doctor taking a job, is it? No, no, no. And I started part-time just working on Saturdays, really having no clue what I was doing in hospice. No clue what you were doing in hospice. Would not a doctor have at least one or two clues about that? Um, tragically, no. The time I trained, this sounds harsh, but there was essentially, um, we were guilty of abandonment of the dying patient in a training center. The idea was we were so focused on curative aspects of disease interventions, what we could do to a patient, that when there was no longer anything to do for them, we actually signed them off of our residency service because they were no longer teachable to us, which is a shame. When they needed us in form of presence most, we abandoned them. So no, I actually had very little experience yeah, this signing off business, I have to understand this better. You've called it institutional abandonment, or you say that it felt like that. Yes, it did. It did, because you're going along this journey, and there's something in a very that very sacred dynamic between doctor and patient that shouldn't end when you can't gain something from it on your terms. You should be there for them. And patients tell us that all the time when they come from a cancer center where they've gotten an incredible amount of treatment. And then when they're no longer deemed curable, right there, say you go home. Even our economy of healthcare is predicated on a billable act of doing. So you arrive at the hospice facility, part-time work for you. Uh, I even understand there was a, a time when you were interviewing to qualify for the job. Quite a thing. I think you ask the interviewer, what is the best temperament that a person has to have in order to do this kind of work? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Righteous indignation. Yeah. Elaborate on that for me. Why would that be a qualification? So, the gentleman I was talking to is an interesting fellow. His name is Dr. Robert Milch. He was the most important man in my life. He was my mentor. And he was unique in that he was probably leading the cause. He's a pioneer nationally. He had the busiest surgical practice in Western New York. And he felt so deeply about the need to provide dignified care to the dying patient that he left that very lucrative, prestigious career to be at the bedside of dying patients. So in those days, unlike today, this work was rooted in cause and advocacy. And it was a rebuttal to traditional medicine, which was giving unacceptable care and, and comfort to those who needed help at the end of their life. So he was in a fight and he was aggressive in going into our hospitals and demanding better. He established the first palliative care unit in one of our local hospitals. And now 85% of our hospitals in the nation with 250 beds or more have palliative care. He got the first one landed. So he was, I always said he slept better at night if he had a good fight during the day. And that was him. But by the time you got there, this was already underway for some what, couple of decades already. It was still very unusual. Hospice is a nurse-led movement, and doctors really weren't included in the beginning. And so it was unusual, still unusual for a hospice in New York to have a physician. When I went and told my department chair in cardiology that I was leaving a rather lucrative path to do this, he actually asked me if I wanted to see a psychiatrist. Assumed I was yeah. having, I was running from something and having some difficulty because hospice was something you did at the end of the career. And you're just going to sit at the bedside. Again, it speaks to how we viewed care of the dying. Now, you said it was a nurse-led movement. That leads me to Nancy and the patient with AIDS. This is a pivotal story as well. Probably the next big pivotal moment, I think, after that newspaper ad because you learned something. What did Nancy yeah. bring you? Well, I was completely disarmed outside of a hospital, out of place, out of context. And for the first time, I found myself just having to be present. I've always had trouble with people who had unfinished younger lives who were dying. And he was in his 40s and he was alone. I thought maybe we could buy him some time with various interventions like IV fluids and antibiotics. And so I went into the nurse's station and made the pronouncement that this is what I wanted to do because I think we could buy him some time. And Nancy, who's a very hardcore nurse, didn't even look up and just said, no, he's dying. And I said, how do you know? He said, well, he's seen his mother. And I remember thinking this is the most ridiculous thing I'd ever heard. And I said, well, I don't remember that class from medical school. To which she replied, I think you missed a few. 
So it, it was really people <laughs> like Nancy who brought me closer to the bedside and understood that all that needed to be seen wasn't in this objective space. You know, it wasn't measurable. It wasn't concrete. That the patients had a say and they had an inner experience that I didn't understand. So this inner experience that is subjective that the patients have is something then and that Nancy introduced you to? You you hadn't thought about this before? Well, to, if I'm to be very honest, I had. I just had tried my whole life to forget it. When he was just a boy of 12, Christopher Kerr stood at the bedside of his dying father. Now, one of the things that this father-son duo loved doing together was fishing in northern Canada. And as Kerr's dad lay there succumbing to cancer, he started interacting as if the two of them were once again getting ready to go on a trip. He was trying to fix my buttons and get me ready to get on a plane. And that's the last time I saw my father. He may not have had expressly speaking a dream. He was talking to you, wasn't he? Mm-hmm. Oh, he but he was, he was busy in his own mind, and I just happened to be there, I think, and he focused on me. I, I find it comforting to think that, and this is so, so important, because as we in health project at the end of our lives, you can't help but go to fear and apprehension. But when you see this play out and you see he's actually secured somewhere else where he's reliving some of the best parts for having been alive. He talked about fishing with you? Yeah, which is our highlight of our year every year. That was our time together. And it's not random. I mean, that's where he went. That's what mattered to him and to me. But it was obviously through a 12-year-old's eyes, it was hard to see your father um, other than fully intact and aware and interactive. And to be honest, what happened was a priest grabbed me and rushed me out of the room. So that was my last recollection. So it kind of went full circle. I went into very interventional curative medicine. And then here I end up back and confronted with what I had seen in my childhood. You were the fifth generation in your family to practice medicine. It's almost like it was the family business. Uh, So do you sort of think that you may have inherited this assumption that doctors are there to intervene and cure, not just sit by and comfort as though there's nothing left to be done for somebody? Uh, You know, had all the doctors in your family thought that way? Less so in earlier generations. It's something we've lost. As we've evolved in our technology, we've become very self-enamored with what we can do and image and measure. Um, Older doctors, presence was a was part of the job. Presence. What do you mean by that? The idea that there was inherent therapeutic value in being there for someone, even in the absence of being able to do anything to them, that non-abandonment had value. And that bond between physician and patient didn't have finish lines that there are today. Well, I'd like to now turn our attention to end-of-life experience as a term. And maybe the best way to kind of define what this is is with an example. You know, I've got a clip to play from a patient at hospice and palliative care in Buffalo. This is a woman named Jeannie describing a dream she had when people came streaming by her bed on both sides, some on the right, some on the left, and they were all friendly, and they would touch her on the arm as they went by. This is what she's seeing And the people on the right, those were the people she didn't know. But the other side were people that I knew. My mom and dad were there, uh, my uncle. Everybody I knew that was dead was there. (laughs) And they passed and did the same thing. So you knew this woman. Yep, Mm mm-hmm. And you filmed her? You taped her? Yes. Yeah, what we did was really clever and quite by accident. Very quickly, what happened was I started to teach students. And because we live in an evidence-based time, everyone would dismiss it. And so we started to do the research on these patients and shoot ahead 20-some-odd years. We looked at 1,400 patients and families at least. And we also filmed them because we wanted to address people's assumptions that they were confused, that their mind was frail or friable. 
And so we wanted to capture in their words what they were saying and experiencing. Yeah, she sounded fully uh, capable, her executive function. She's telling you straight, she's leveling with you. And uh, at least in the audio, I've listened to a lot of people in audio, and there's nothing wrong with that mind telling that story. No, and that's why it's really important to see and hear their voices. You couldn't participate. These are university-approved studies. You couldn't participate unless you were first screened for confusion. You have to be fully aware in order to participate. And actually, they have heightened awareness in so many ways different than dreams. They're very intact, and they're not metaphorical. They're very grounded. So right now you're qualifying, you're describing the nature of these dreams, these end-of-life experiences, as you call them. Uh, but your book title, it does refer to dreams. Death is but a dream. Uh, these are not exactly dreams as we customarily use the word. Yeah, we use the term dreams. It's the only nomenclature that's really near what we're describing. But what's interesting is people go out of their way to tell you that this wasn't like a dream. They'll say, if I don't typically dream, I don't recall my dream, or you don't understand. They speak of it as though it was a happening. It seems virtual to them. And there's nothing strange or metaphorical. They're not asking for interpretation. They just come out with a knowing sense of what they've had experienced. So when my own grandfather passed away and he was in his bed and my family members were there and he doesn't seem to be asleep, but he points off to a corner of the room that's empty and says, there's my whole family. My family tells that story, but we kind of default to the assumption that, oh, he might not really have been altogether there. And yet we're also religious people, and so we also are pulled in the direction of saying, well, maybe this was real. They certainly report that it's real. Oh, good for you. I think that you did exactly what we need to do, which is stop worrying about its etiology or its source and just value it for what it is to the patient. And I think after doing this for years, you just can't have the help but have a sort of reverence. And the fact that there's so much commonality in these experiences. They're more alike than they are unlike. It's just so remarkable that in the end, what you seem to be doing is focusing on the people who matter to you most. And they return to you, and particularly those who are deceased. So when we looked at our patients in our first study, we followed them every day towards their death. And as they got closer to death, they started having more and more of these events, but particularly they were focused on people who they've loved and lost and the message was the same, was that you were okay, you're loved, and you're not alone. And interesting, we measured comfort as a matter of what you were seeing. We asked them to rate it. The most comfortable experiences were seeing people who they loved and lost. There's almost a sense of being put back together. So in your grandfather's case, what defines us is our relationships. And those come to him, which is a wonderful way to reflect on a life. And it seems to lessen the fear of dying and really validates the life that you led. So have you, in fact, felt that a lot of folks have just been dismissive of these experiences and written them off as the experience of delirium? And is that less the case today? Are, are we getting away from that dismissive approach? Yeah, it's easy to put this in this black box because we have to label or define or diagnose and where there's a tendency to devalue one's inner experiences. I think we all have that bias, at least I certainly did. I think medically speaking, I don't think we're any closer to understanding it unless the qualifier to that is if the physician themselves, just like you had, had a personal experience and they bring that to their clinical work, they're more likely to have regard. Again, I think nurses see it very differently, and they're closer to the bedside and to the care. I think as a society, though, I think, yes, I think we are closer because I think as a society, we don't want the doctor's death. We don't want a medicalized view of dying that's based on organ failure. We want to see it as a closing of a life that can be reclaimed. So I think there is better acceptance outside of medicine. Having just heard this woman, Jeannie, and she saw people passing by her, some of whom she knew. Is this common? Are there patterns? Are there different types of dreams? Do they always involve or often involve specific types of people who are dead or alive? Yeah, we've looked at this very closely. What does the content look like and what does it change? What's the temporal change over, over time? And there are some themes. There's about a third of people report kind of a travel-like event, which is sort of metaphorical that there's a transition. Pets are extraordinarily common. Um, 
But the number one thing far and away is seeing people who you've loved. And they tend to be, what's really interesting is you tend to edit your life so that you exclude people who have harmed or conditioned their love. So one parent maybe, but not another. And you focus on those very little, very, very little is said between the dreamer and the people in the dream. Again, they're just given this sense of knowing their presence and reclaiming that feeling of love and familiarity. They don't come out of these experiences with a ton of words, epiphanies, words of wisdom, and they don't ask for interpretation. They, you know, when your grandfather saw his gone family, he didn't need that explained. He just knew. He was the youngest of a very large family. I can't remember how many siblings, but the very youngest and the last to go, you know. And so it made sense to us as a family to see his experience and to try to see it through his eyes. Yeah, you're going to think about the things that truly matter to who you are. A few years back when you were giving a TED Talk about this, you said that you have a deep aversion, or at least you had a deep aversion, to the non-physical spiritual aspects of dying. And you said that that went back to losing your father. Tell me about an aversion to the non-physical spiritual aspects of dying that you had, because I, I think you've left that behind. Well, thank you. I never thought of it that way. Maybe I have. You know, I was at a formative age, obviously, and I couldn't really speak of him after he died. The loss was indescribable. And I was forever discomforted by the things that I couldn't understand. So any talk of anything, be it seances, anything like that, just gave me the creeps. So I, I'm the guy who would always veer away from even exploring those sort of things. So I, I'm a good messenger on this topic because I'm kind of like the last guy in the church. I was the skeptic, so I'm a good messenger, maybe. <laughs> but I think it might be helpful here to be really clear about when we're talking about skepticism here, and you're talking about skepticism about the spiritual experiences of a living person who just happens to be dying, and this spiritual experience comes just before the end. We're not talking about all those stories of near-death experiences where people die and say that they get a choice and they come back, they flatline. We're not talking about that, are we? No, no. We're just viewing the dying process as a mystery and a wonder onto itself without projecting into or extrapolating or interpreting what happens. And just as a matter of fact, I'm not an expert on near-death, but these are qualitatively completely different. Our patients are dying. The time for therapy is over. They don't have to feel the need to message anything or do a redo or anything like that. There's no work involved. Um, where that's not doesn't sound what's happened with near death. Yeah. Mary is an individual I want to talk to you about, a 70-year-old artist. She had four children, one of your very first patients at the hospice outfit there in Buffalo. Tell us about Mary and this remarkable event that was kind of a mystery to the family where she starts, well, you tell the story. She starts to... So I kind of had one eye open into this phenomenon at this point. But this was the epiphany that I recognized how inherently therapeutic these events were. So very quickly, Mary had four living children and she was a very creative, artistic, open-minded person. And her children were all around her. Towards the end of her life, she's referencing all of these things in their life and the children could identify with all of them. And then what happened was she started to hold a baby and cooing the baby in her arms that obviously wasn't there, uh, at least physically, and even giving the baby a name, Danny. And the children were kind of thrown off because they were very open to all the other things she was saying, but they didn't understand who's this baby. And then Mary's sister flew in from out of the state and they told her, we don't understand she's cooing and kissing a baby named Danny. And that's when her sister said, well, that was the baby um, she had lost, her first baby. And I remember it like it was yesterday. It's just the idea that she had this spiritual, emotional, psychic wound that she had carried with her her entire life, most of her life. And here it was at the end of her life, she was being healed and um, made whole again. I became instantly less concerned with the source of this, whether I need to look for an infection or electrolyte imbalance, and just having real regard, reverence, actually, for what was transpiring. And, you know, that was hers. It belonged to her. 
and it wasn't for me to dissect or to interpret. That was, you know, really very impactful experience. And since then, I've seen, I can't tell you how many people who have um, been reunited with somebody they lost like a baby. And, and there was nothing there to treat in terms of pain or suffering that you could no. see going on there? In fact, that's a great question because she couldn't have looked more at peace. And that's really the paradox of all of this is that we assume that dying, we see it in its physical dimensions uh, of lessening and suffering. But what we miss is the spiritual and psychological or emotional piece of this, which is actually not harmed or broken at all, uh, but vibrant. You know, sometimes people throw around the word closure, and I kind of hate that term. I, I, when I, I think do, about I Mary. Yeah. I do too. Yeah, well, it seems like a better way to approach this is that in this end-of-life experience that may involve dreams or visions that some people might write off as delirious, that if we allow the space for that just to proceed and be there, that there can be some really salutary benefit to the individual. Well, growth is a term that you have used in this stage. We don't think in those terms. We don't think that a dying person will suddenly have some significant personal, emotional, or spiritual growth. I'm glad you brought that up. We published seven or eight papers. I think our most interesting paper looks at this idea is that this paradox, despite the physical decline, could you be growing? And we did a study where we used a measurement that's used for something called post-traumatic growth. The idea in a negative or harming experience that there could be positive gains. And people who were having these experiences scored high in every, every measure that they were gaining insight and understanding even as they were dying. So the best way to say it is that they didn't stop living because they were dying. They actually were doing important living while they were dying. And beside the facade of the physical form, there was something deep and pretty wondrous happening to these people like Mary. And it's measurable right in the last days of life. Dr. Christopher Kerr is author of Death is But a Dream, Finding Hope and Meaning at Life's End. You know, it's one thing for a lay person like me to read up a little on the research done by Dr. Kerr and his associates on end-of-life experiences. But do you remember earlier in our conversation, back when we were talking about his mentor, Dr. Robert Milch, there was more than just casual mention of a medical system so ossified that it really deserved to catch a little righteous indignation. Well, as things stood back then in the system, palliative and hospice care were clearly stepchildren, or even worse, not worth a second glance, perhaps. So how have Kerr's studies and findings of two decades now involving video recordings of 1,400 patients, how has this been received by the medical establishment? Any substantial traction there? I'm Marcus Smith, and you're listening to Constant Wonder. So in your book, you gather all these various stories together from the research that you've done, and the study, the scientific aim of this was not originally for an audience of people like me. You were trying to prepare science that other medical professionals would read, and it, it didn't turn out that way. <laughs> well, it's actually the story within the story, which I think is really cool. I was frustrated trying to teach this stuff, so I thought, okay, I'll show them, and I'll put it in their language. You know, I'll measure it. I'll do labs. I'll do all of the doctory stuff. It didn't register, let's put it that way, with that intended artist. And what happened was fascinating. It seeped out into the lay literature, ended up in the New York Times, Washington Post, et cetera, et cetera, and literally going around the world and hasn't stopped since 2015. And that's so telling that the dichotomy between how the clinicians see the importance of this and yet how the people who are experiencing and witnessing see this is strikingly different. Well, you know, people who do study in, say, ethnography or they're in the social sciences and they go out and they, they get oral histories, that kind of thing, that's a valid methodology. It's just very different, I think, maybe from what somebody might encounter in medical school in terms of the subjective idea that you're going to actually listen to what the patient says, not 
for the sake of being able to diagnose that patient and then treat that patient exclusively, but just because what the patient says matters. Yeah, it's their experience. Yeah, exactly. Well said. Without getting too wonkish about this, just give us the basics of your methodology. How did you proceed with the taping of the interviews just at the bedside in in the hospice facility? Yeah, it was great because another story within a story is the university first wouldn't allow us to do the study because we viewed the dying as they need to be almost sterilized and put on a shelf and don't bug them. And the truth is dying is lonely. They're looking up at a white ceiling and actually people want to have their voices heard. And we have rarely had anyone decline to participate, which is fascinating because there's no secondary gain. There's no downstream benefit for them. They just want to be heard. And what's remarkable is people want to be filmed. They don't look like we once did. Um, they're not made up, but it's the real stuff. And when it comes down to it, they absolutely want to participate in the belief that they're giving something back of value, which is wonderful. So are there some of these patients that you're at bedside with them taping intermittently for, what, weeks, even months? Yes. Yeah, we started two weeks or less before death and found out that many people came in and they were dreaming. So then we went further upstream and would just ask them straight up, are you having these experiences? Yes, no. And we followed them every day. And we had a set questionnaire, so we were standardizing the data. And then we would separately ask more qualitatively to just describe it, tell us and share it. And we often filmed those patients. How many hundreds did you have to tape before you started to see that there were elements of consistency of experience? I was probably the first 50 or 70. We were stunned that, boy, these are all sounding alike. And we separately had a team analyze the qualitative research because that's a whole skill set which I'm not qualified to do. And they were coming back and saying, boy, there's these characteristics to them, that there's these commonalities. And that's a real science in how to interpret all of that. But yeah, it became pretty clear pretty quick. I'd like to talk now about a little bit about the effect that these dreams that the patients have, what the effect is on their family, the ones they leave behind. Because you are very concerned about that as well. I mean, a family is the context for so many of these dying individuals. Not all of them. Some of them are kind of all alone, on, and that's hard too. But what do people report about what the dreams mean for them? Like my family remembering grandpa's dreams. Yeah. You know, I think your story speaks to this, which is that how we see someone we love leave us matters. It contextualizes the end of their life. It actually speaks to your recollection and recall grief and bereavement. It matters greatly. That's why the unit of care in a hospice model is never just the patient, but the patient in the context of those they love. And it turns out we published two papers with surveys and interviews of over 700 families. It makes a hell of a difference how the person experienced their loved one leaving. Mary, for example. So her children, they're seeing their mom reunited with her lost child, brought a level of comfort to them that is indescribable, that an aspect of her having lived was healed, and she left them more comforted than distressed. And that's how she's recalled. That same dynamic plays out in this next clip I'm going to play. This is the daughter of Sonny and Joan. Uh, will, will you introduce us to this couple? They were remarkable. They're both the um, children of Polish immigrants. And when he was either 10 or 11, he, they were neighbors. He gave her a toy ring and said, you're going to be my wife. And, of course, they ended up married together. And they were inseparable and deeply in love. So they were both in our hospice program together. He passes and she immediately starts to have her foot in kind of two worlds. He was inseparable from her. So she continued to be fully intact. She had intact conversations all the time, but she was also experiencing his presence all the time. Here's their daughter, Lisa, as she reflects on her mother's final days. And I might add that your own voice as the interviewer is, is heard here for just a bit at the very end. We would all sit in the living room together, the family, the four of us, and we brought dad's ashes home and put him in the living room because he's gonna be with my mother. He was in the hutch by my mother's bed. 
every night we would hear a knock in the hallway and our dogs would bark like someone was there. So mom would say someone's there because we all heard it. And then go look, no one's there. Yeah. And then on a week after dad died, she woke up crying so hard. And that's when she said, I had a dream about daddy. Every night, Sonny, Sonny, come get me. Sonny, I miss you, Sonny, come get me. It was every night. She would say that she she saw dad the one day she woke up very happy and smiling and she says, I saw your father's face and he was smiling. She was very at peace. Yeah. Then she started seeing him in the living room. So she'd say, oh, your dad's here. She'd get a big smile on her face and she'd say, your dad's here. I'm like, really, where is he? Sitting right there next to her. The one day he was sitting next to my father-in-law and it all kind of made us at peace because we knew dad was there. And when she would make these statements, she was fully lucid and appropriate. She was lucid till the very end. We have to talk about the dying who are young. Let's just jump right to our next audio with uh, the mother, uh, Tammy Bailey, who lost her daughter, Sierra. Sierra was 28 when she passed. And uh, somebody there appeared to her as well before she died. Her grandfather being there, of course, made it a lot more comforting for her. I think had Sierra not had those visions, I think she would have been more frightened. I think she may not have had uh, that, I don't want to say easiness, but I think she would have been more compelled to vocalize how frightened she was. But knowing that he was there for her, it made it very much easier for me because I knew she would have him to be with and he would take care of her. It does help me process the loss because I believe they visit us, both of them. You know, <laughs> I, I think, um, you know, it, things happen for a reason. And yeah, she's not in pain anymore. And she's back to her healthy, playful, joyful self, you know, and, uh, He's there to watch over her as he did here. You must have a good manner with these people because they just open wide open to you, don't they? They do to the whole team. You know, they're intensely processing, but what's different at this stage and with this situations is how open and honest people are like her. So that was truly remarkable. What happened was she, Sierra had a very rapid disease progression. Unfortunately, she was misdiagnosed for a long time. She had an infant and was about to get married and then she's dying and we were having a great deal of difficulty getting her to recognize let alone accept where she was at and then the family couldn't and we were worried about her siblings getting counseling etc and then one day we were all in her room and another doctor asked if she was having any dreams or whatever and she starts talking to her grandfather and when we asked her, what does he say? He says that he loved her. He was so proud of her. And you fought really hard, but this is where you're at. And everything changed. So it turned out that we were having one conversation with her and she was having these other conversations. And just opening that allowed for a different level of acceptance. And the mom pivoted at that point. She understood better than we could ever explain to her uh, her grandfather, who was very close to her in life and had helped raise her, was actually with her in some way. And she left us at peace. But it was a pivot. I was just thinking about the word pivot because that seems to be fairly characteristic of these stories that you share and that emerged from the study, from all of your interviews with not just the family, but the patients themselves. Yes, yes. And I think it's what we get wrong about dying is that we're so in, intrinsically built to fight to live. But there is a point when people reach some level of acceptance and they have a different path they go on, like Sierra. And that's the pivot point, I guess. 
Speaking of pivots, we don't want to imply here that all of these dreams, visions, end-of-life experiences are rosy and comforting. The research done by Dr. Kerr reveals that nearly one in five patients describe their experiences as distressing. And I asked him if this complicated his conclusions. He said that at first they were very concerned that these upsetting dreams were making dying a more painful experience for people. We got it wrong because we associated distressing with just negative value. And actually, those are the most transformational, impactful experiences people have. Well, now you have to tell us the story of Eddie. Uh, what a character. The way you describe him, 69 years old, formerly a police officer. He had advanced lung cancer. Uh, what did Eddie do that you and your team observed? What was the course of his, his condition and how did that play out? Because he's in this category. You die as you live. And he was a rascal. He was the dirty cop in his own words. He had planted evidence. He had beaten people. He was a heavy drinker for most of his life. He had been unfaithful and divorced multiple times. And so he was also rooted in deep Catholic upbringing. So he was overwhelmed with a sense of grief and loss. And what actually happened was a New York Times reporter came and wanted to interview patients. And we said, well, why don't you meet Eddie? I didn't know the story about it. This is a nurse just introduced them. Of course, he broke he, the wall. He wasn't your poster child. He was not your poster child. <laughs> no, he's not your poster. There's not a lot of redeeming qualities in his experience, but he was cathartic all the time. He wanted everyone to hear. It was kind of his confessional. So you walked by him and he told you the nasty thing he did to so-and-so and so-and-so. He was, um, he was very blunt with this reporter and the reporter came back really quite stunned because there's nothing nice about this guy's experiences because he was reliving in vivid color all that he had done wrong. Until? Until the end. Major shift in his uh, approach to this all. Yes. Something happened. And is he the fellow who then went asleep for a long stretch, something like 36 hours, and then came out a different guy? Yeah. He knew his death was <laughs> approaching, and he was had escalating distress because he thought he was going to hell. And again, he couldn't shake the, his religious upbringing. And his kids were terribly worried for him. But... After Eddie was seemingly tortured by all that he had done wrong, he slipped into a long sleep for a day and a half. And when he woke up, he was, as Kerr writes in Death is But a Dream, inexplicably euphoric. He started calling his relatives and telling them he loved them, saying final goodbyes. He arranged for a final confession with his former priest. This U-turn toward religion shocked his daughter, in these moments when Eddie told his family that he was about to go, he was no longer terrified by what might await him after death. He had found peace. He was reassured he was okay. And the parallel experience was we had a drug dealer, so we had a cop and a criminal around the same time. And the criminal had done some pretty nasty stuff, and he dreamt that he was being stabbed at the site of his cancer in his neck. Dr. Kerr is referring to a patient named Dwayne who had lived a life full of drug abuse and criminality. It's a way of life that his daughter Brittany had unfortunately also fallen into. When Dwayne was in hospice, Brittany was serving a prison sentence. Dwayne became deeply depressed. He thought he'd never see her again and felt he needed to make amends to her. Dwayne's doctor... Megan Farrell successfully petitioned to get his daughter Brittany out of prison to be with her father in these final days. I came through the front door, and when I turned the corner, like he was just walking with his walker, and and I said, "Hey, old man," and it was like I guess he heard my voice, and he just like froze and like stuck, and he lifted his head up. And he moved that walker, and he snatched away from her, and he just started walking towards me off that. And we just stood there for, I want to say, like, three, four minutes, and we just cried. He just kept saying, like, how sorry he was, and, like, he didn't mean it. And I just told him, don't worry about it. I'm home. You know, I don't even care about that. That was the only because I actually really ever hugged my dad, ever in life. Like, I've hugged my dad all the time, but standing there hugging him for that long again. 
fill us in on this, this family story. Yeah, so what had happened was, it, despite spending most of his life in jail and out, he was actually a delightful, highly intelligent and humorous guy, but he didn't live in regret. And what happened is end-of-life experiences forced him to confront what he had done in his life. So he wakes up and he asks to see his daughter. And for the first time, he had this kind of honest reckoning. And we witnessed it. He hugged her in the hallway, wouldn't let her go. And he said how sorry he was. And he hadn't been able to sleep. And after he had this reunion with his daughter and released himself of his regrets, he was able to sleep comfortably. And she stayed by his side. He lived about another two weeks. It goes back to what I was saying earlier and what we got wrong in that these discomforting, distressing dreams are so often the most impactful and transformative ones. It's not all rainbows and birds saying, don't deny the life that was led, but they bring about a change. And that's particularly true with our veterans, for example, with PTSD, that they've carried their whole life and they're released of it at the end. It's important to say here, it's not just the dying who are released from their demons. Brittany, Dwayne's daughter, decided when she saw her father's transformation that she would give up drugs and turn her life around. Throughout my conversation with Christopher Kerr, hearing these stories, I was just continually struck by how profound simple gestures were. These end-of-life experiences sometimes will focus on things that are not grandiose. We're not talking about religious visions of angels with trumpets. We're talking about the dog we're talking about a friend. Yeah. We're talking about day-to-day mundane kinds of behaviors and memories. Yeah, and we struggled with this because there was a near absence of religious symbolism or reference. And then one day I read this wonderful article written by a Harvard-trained divinity student named Carrie Egan, who was working with the dying. She had to make this argument to a professor that, I'm sorry, but they don't talk in religious terms. And where she was at that I've come to appreciate is, you know, we know God when we know love. And um, the first and last classroom of love is our family. And that's where it begins and that's where it ends. This idea of loving and forgiving are the central tenets of faith. And that if you, so if you invert the equation, it's actually the predominant themes of these experiences. So we don't talk in terms of mosque or church or synagogue, but the real stuff. Is there something to be gained for somebody like me who, as far as I know, I have no terminal illness and I have many, many years ahead of myself and I'm not hanging out around a hospice facility? I was at my father's bedside, but that's not my day-to-day experience. I want to know if this transfers to just sort of normal life, whatever that is. Yeah, I, I, there are. I think there's a very hopeful story. I think that, I think for me, it's this notion that the things that matter most, that may feel gone, are still accessible. So in my case, you know, I may have lost a parent when I was a child, but I'm pretty sure I'll be reacquainted or refamiliarized at some point near the end of my life because that's what I've witnessed for decades. So what feels like loss and absence may not truly be the whole story. And there's hope in that. Christopher Kerr is CEO and Chief Medical Officer at Hospice and Palliative Care Buffalo, New York. His book is Death is But a Dream, Finding Hope and Meaning at Life's End. This episode was produced by Tenery Taylor with help from Lily Jensen. Sound design by Kevin West, Kira Brewer, and Kaysen Renshaw. Here at Constant Wonder, we're just so enamored of Dr. Kerr and all the work he's doing to better understand these end-of-life experiences. But it turns out he's doing good in many ways, and we'd like to bring you a little bonus story. So stick around, and we'll share with you how Dr. Kerr opened up his 60-acre horse ranch to refugees turning horse pastures into community gardens. Christopher Kerr is the kind of person who, when he sees a need, he tries to fill that void. We've seen that in how he's changing the way people think about dying. Well, we found out about another time when he saw a need and pitched in to make people's lives better. Here's a story about the Providence Farm Collective. 
it's no secret that you are a friend to horses. <laughs> Did I get that right? Yeah, I've been in the fellowship of horses my whole life. Yep. Yeah. And so what is this Providence Farm Collective and where is it situated and your involvement with it? Sure. It's a wonderful story. I'm very fortunate to live on a working horse farm and there's 60 acres. And many years ago, somebody who was tuning our refugee community asked them what they needed. And what they needed was access to good food that they could grow. They came originally from an agricultural background. Many of them had been in UN concentration camps in various parts of Africa. And they were living in food deserts and seeing their kids eat unfamiliar and not necessarily nutritious food. So we started off by giving them just a a paddock. And a long story short, over the course of four years, it grew to about 250, 300 families from all over the world. And it's probably one of the more larger, comprehensive farming communities with refugees. So is this purely sort of a humanitarian gesture on your part, making this land available? And, uh, and do you get to rub shoulders with them? Yeah, they're my friends. <laughs> they're in my backyard. And it's a bittersweet story. They were so successful at doing this that they a- actually garnered a great deal of attention and a significant amount of funding. And in the fifth year, we're able to purchase their own farm. So now they're the owners of their own land and they come from our inner cities. They each have various lots and acres to farm. And it's a very comprehensive. So there's business development programs. They're tied into the food distribution network. It's an ecosystem within itself. And it's just a remarkable, if given the opportunity, remarkable can be achieved. So has your land then reverted to a paddock? Yeah, it's unfortunate it's back to to horses and horse people, but I think some will be coming back. I like to reallocate some like to a soccer field for them so they have a community center. You know, the value in this was beyond the food. They were getting out of some rough neighborhoods, able to be families together, communal, in a healthy environment. It was really a come as you go. We had to take down several paddocks just to handle all the parking. So it was vibrant. It was just wonderful. It was one of the best times of my life. Dr. Christopher Kerr, a generous man of many interests and talents. It's been an honor, well, first of all, just to get to know him myself, and and then, two, to introduce him to you here on Constant Wonder. I'm Marcus Smith. Thanks for listening. Constant Wonder is a production of BYU Radio.